0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: We're in Russia, it's twenty twenty, and we've just made a mammoth discovery. Literally. <laughs> On the edge of a beach above the Arctic Circle, scientists are busy exhuming the bones of a 10,000-year-old adult mammoth. Not the first woolly mammoth ever found by any means, but this time the bones contain soft tissue. Hello, Anthony Fennell here and welcome to the first show in our 2021-2022 series of highlights. Over the next five weeks, we'll replay some of our favourite Future Tense episodes of the past year. Today's show is all about the maturing of a once-controversial conservation approach known as rewilding.
2: There's a lot of things that I really like about the term rewilding. So I know that there's been a lot of focus on reintroducing large charismatic megafauna, but I think the term has really evolved to incorporate many more different taxa and the entire ecosystem and all of the downstream cascades that come as a result of those introductions.
1: And it's that evolution we're going to focus on today. We'll come back to the woolly mammoth a little later in the program, I promise. But as evolutionary biologist Michelle Weber just indicated, the game has changed significantly since the last time Future Tense took a look at the field around about eight years ago. Back then, rewilding was all about attempts to bring back extinct giants like the mammoth or to reintroduce apex predators like wolves and bears to rural areas that they'd been driven out of in the past. It had a largely nostalgic feel to it. But today, it's much more future-focused, using the reintroduction of species to strengthen habitats and promote biodiversity.
2: It's really an ecosystem perspective at a landscape scale. And I like the fact that we are talking about the health of the interactions that build the entire ecosystem and that we're talking about it at big enough scales that will actually start to incorporate all sorts of things that weren't necessarily part of the original plan.
3: You know, there is, I guess, a great need for success stories in conservation. I'm sure most of us are familiar, you know, we often see environmental stories, conservation stories, reporting doom and gloom because we are amidst, you know, the world's sixth mass extinction event and we do need to have hope and bringing back species is a positive thing that we can do and it can have really great outcomes for the environment. So it is something that we want to actually support.
1: Ewan Ritchie, an associate professor in wildlife ecology and conservation at Deakin University.
3: Unfortunately, we don't have a TARDIS. We can't go back in time and, and right the wrongs that we've done. But we can think about what future we might have. So, how might our environments look if we could bring back some of these species, and including species that are not extinct? So, species that might occur in one area but have gone extinct elsewhere, and we might be able to bring them back. So, we really want to be focusing on that.
1: And in the Australian context, according to Dr Ritchie, that could start with the strategic reintroduction of dingoes across large parts of the continent.
3: We know, as an example, that the dingo, in particular, can control kangaroo numbers, and in some parts of southern and eastern Australia, they can get in quite high numbers now because we've changed the landscape. There's a lot more water that's available to kangaroos. There's a lot more grass that's available to kangaroos. And dingoes, which one of their main predators, have been killed off. So if we could bring them back, that can help regulate their numbers, which has flow and benefits for a whole range of other species. Dingoes also are known to kill feral goats, so that can help us manage an invasive species. There's also, of course, been talk about bringing something like the Tasmanian devil back to the mainland, which was probably in Australia roughly 3,000 or so years ago so ecologically speaking it's not actually a long time and we could think about whether the tasmanian devil might help us potentially to control things like feral cats so there's some evidence that they deter the behavior of cats so cats might avoid particular areas or times of the day where devils are most active so bringing back some of these predators to a landscape in an experiment seen as a as a really positive thing that we might be able to do for conservation.
1: And disease transmission is also an issue that you believe the reintroduction of predators can also help with.
3: One of the problems that we have is where we have species that become overabundant, you know, whether we're talking about native animals like kangaroos, but particularly also feral animals and we have big problems in Australia with things like deer, feral pigs and goats and so forth. If they reach really high numbers, they can be vectors for disease, but also even when they die. If those animals are not being eaten and removed from the landscape, that can also be a source of disease. And so we know that having predators in the landscape is a really healthy, you know, situation for ecosystems. So we need them to sort of keep things in balance and reducing disease transmission is a potential benefit as well.
1: Now your research has stressed the importance of focusing on the ecological functions of species rather than their individual identities and origins. Just explain that idea to us and why that's important.
3: So the dingo is probably arguably one of australia's most controversial and emotive species so it was introduced to australia roughly three and a half thousand years ago as a minimum but potentially much longer ago and so some people don't class it as a native animal other people do but the fact of the matter is that we've lost the phyllocene the tasmania tiger from mainland australia we did have a mainland version of the tasmanian devil we had the marsupial lion leo, and a whole range of other predators and they are all gone from australia and and particularly the mainland, of course. And so the dingo, whether you call it native or not, has a really important role in the landscape, again, in regulating things like kangaroo numbers, of course, getting rid of some feral animals and keeping things in balance, you know, like we see again in other parts of the world with things like wolves, which help to regulate numbers of deer in some parts of the US, large cats in parts of Africa and Europe and so forth. And so we can fixate on what we call something, but at the end of the day, Ecosystems need species playing their role and so their functions are really important and the dingo is the best that we have currently in Australia you know, for a land-based animal.
1: And how far can you go back in time before a species is no longer relevant to its original environment? Is there a rough kind of cut-off point?
3: Look, I don't think there's an exact of point for that. It's a fascinating question to ponder. And that's been discussed even in the context of the thylacine, which, you know, didn't go extinct very long at all. You know, 1936 was the last animal that was in captivity. But people have discussed about the fact that, you know, maybe its habitat has been largely removed in many parts of Tasmania. So there are big questions about even if you could bring back an animal to the landscape at some point in the future, would there be suitable environments for these species? And a uh, I guess a really important point to consider is that we're experiencing rapid climate change. And if we don't manage to avert the worst possible scenarios, which are temperature increases above one and a half to two degrees. So above that, we're really gonna see some pretty dramatic and dire changes to environments. It may be that quite large areas become unsuitable for a whole range of species, including species that we might be trying to bring back through rewilding. So we do need to be thinking about these things as well.
2: The black-footed ferret has lived on this planet for half a million years. Our goal with this project is to ensure its survival for the next half a million years.
1: If you conserve black-footed ferrets, you're going to be required to conserve prairie dogs, and by extension, a lot of other species
3: our use of these powerful technologies can kind of redress some of the damages that we have done and awaken us to the possibilities of restoring nature beyond what we imagined possible.
1: Revive and Restore is a US-based organisation that uses genetic tools to save endangered species and, if and where possible, to try and bring back extinct ones. Dr Michelle Weber is its Director of Conservation Innovation.
2: The rationale is quite simple. It's that we need to use all the tools in the toolbox. Revive and Restore is making an effort to fill a gap in the conservation toolbox. We see a lot of incredible research coming out of academia and out of industry, and we've made huge progress in genetics, but it's been primarily applied so far to solve biomedical and agricultural challenges. And it's very slow to trickle down into conservation. And so what our organization is trying to do is speed up that knowledge transfer and bring those genetic tools to bear on conservation problems on the biodiversity crisis, taxon by taxon. And this is just another approach, this is another set of tools that will have to be combined with existing well-proven methods to improve outcomes.
1: And when we talk about genetic tools, what are we talking about exactly? What sort of tools? How do they work?
2: So when we talk about the genetic rescue toolkit at Revive and Restore, we start with genomics. Basic DNA sequencing on the genome scale will provide information about the diversity and the history of that organism. We also talk about biobanking, so making sure that that DNA and that information is preserved out into the future. We talk about synthetic alternatives and using molecular biology tools to actually create molecules in the lab that can replace the molecules derived from wild-caught animals or wild-harvested plants. We use advanced reproductive tools to restore genetic diversity. And then we can use tools like genetic engineering or gene editing to tackle problems like facilitated adaptation, invasive species and even de-extinction.
1: Which brings us to Elizabeth Ann. A small furry bundle of genetic potential.
2: Elizabeth Ann is a black-footed ferret. So this is a small carnivore that's native to the wild prairies of North America. And we thought that these carnivores were extinct in the 80s. They hadn't been seen in a while. And then they were rediscovered. A small population was brought into captivity and a captive breeding program was established. The captive breeding program has successfully produced hundreds, maybe thousands of individuals, but they're all descended from seven individuals, seven founders. Luckily, back in the 80s, when that first population was brought into captivity, somebody was prescient enough to save cells, and those cells were frozen at the San Diego frozen zoo and preserved until now. And in 2020, one of those cell lines was cloned to produce Elizabeth Ann. The nucleus from those historic cells was injected into a donor egg cell, and the resulting embryo was injected into a surrogate mother where it grew up into Elizabeth Ann, who was just born in December. And so this ferret carries a genome from the 1980s that has since been lost. And so this will be an eighth founder to the population.
1: And that idea of restoring genetic diversity is enormously important, isn't it? This is not just, well, your work's not just about bringing back more offspring, say, from, uh, you know, an endangered species.
2: Yes, absolutely. So, there are thousands of black-footed ferrets that have been bred by that captive breeding program over the last several decades. But all of the black-footed ferrets that are alive today are either siblings or cousins, and they carry very closely related DNA. And so, by introducing a new founder, we're actually adding new DNA, new genetic variation, And that's very different from just individual organisms. And so most of our work is about genetic rescue and it's about making this genetic diversity available for natural selection to act on so that evolutionary processes don't stall and that these populations do not suffer inbreeding effects.
1: Are you also adapting the genetic makeup of species to try and make them more resistant to, say, disease, that kind of thing? Is that possible?
2: Disease is a real challenge. Pathogens are moving around more than ever, and I think we've really seen this in the times of the coronavirus. So there's multiple different ways that we can approach this challenge. Revive and Restore has a Catalyst Science Fund, which supports a portfolio of projects that tackle genetic rescue in different ways, and several of them tackle disease. So in one particular project, sea stars are an example they suffer from a wasting disease along the pacific coast of north america and we are using dna sequencing to infer which points in the genome may be responsible for survival in the sea stars that are still alive today with those answers we will be able to strategically breed sea stars to skew the population towards individuals with those same genomic components so that they will be more likely to survive when they were released the black-footed ferret for example, suffers from sylvatic plague. This is an invasive pathogen and it's lethal. So currently all black-footed ferrets have to be vaccinated, otherwise they die of sylvatic plague. And so we can approach this infection challenge at least two different ways in the host. We can either directly engineer solutions to this particular pathogen, or we can think about engineering the immune system to adapt more readily. So we are starting to think about both of these different approaches for the black-footed ferret. But as with any interaction, it pays to consider it from both sides. And so if we know how the pathogen works, maybe we could actually engineer the pathogen to be less infectious or less virulent. And so that is another alternative that we're considering for the black-footed ferret and the sylvatic plague threat.
1: So the genetic rescue approach is showing considerable promise. And Revive and Restore are now applying it to a range of animal species. But it comes at a cost.
2: So genetic rescue is not cheap. I think from what I've said so far, you could see that coming. It's very expensive and it costs us somewhere around 40000 US dollars for one round of cloning in the ferret. So like anything, the cost will go down as technology improves. But this is not meant to be an ongoing high maintenance solution. This is meant to be a jumpstart. The end goal is to eliminate conservation reliance. So right now we're spending much more than $40,000 maintaining a black-footed ferret captive breeding program, paying all the people to take care of the ferrets, paying for all of the reintroductions, paying for all of the vaccination programs, etc. So if we can reintroduce enough genetic variation to where the ferrets can recover themselves out on the landscape and are no longer reliant on these types of programs, then we will save money in the long run. And the goal is that if you strategically inject money in this type of genetic rescue at the right time and the right place, then you can actually make things easier in the long term and bring costs way down.
0: You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future.
1: Looking at unintended consequences, we know the introduction of any kind of animal into an environment or any kind of plant into an environment can often have dire consequences. How can scientists using the rewilding approach, how can they be certain that the reintroduction of animals is actually going to have the the desired effect the the effect that they anticipate.
3: We can never be 100% certain of what a reintroduction or a rewriting program is going to achieve, but we can also be confident that we have really good science of reintroductions of other species already. So particularly in Australia we've been doing reintroductions of a, of a large number of mammal species in a large number of locations and we have excellent science about, you know, what the best processes there are, but if we are going to be bringing back particularly larger predators, then of course, we're not just going to release them into the landscape and hope for the best. It would be done in a really controlled fashion. So it might be done first within a smaller area that's potentially fenced. We might have animals that are collared you know, with GPS collars so we can track their movements and know where they are. And we can monitor the outcomes of that trial and see how it goes. And if it's positive, fantastic, and we might even expand it further. But if things go wrong, if things going not the way we might like, then we might bring that program back and, and, and cease that program. So there's obviously a, a really important role for monitoring and keeping things in check as, as we're trying in these experiments. But it is also really important to take risks. So we are losing species and we're seeing ecosystems degrading quite rapidly, again, for our actions, whether it be habitat loss, whether it be invasive species and climate change. And we do need new approaches to hopefully increase resilience of systems. And rewilding is one option that we have. And so we should be taking these calculated risks, but doing it in a careful way.
1: Animals aren't just instinctive. They learn behaviour from social interaction and real world experience. You know, like not to eat certain types of other animals because they might be poisonous, for instance. How do you factor that kind of knowledge into a rewilding program?
3: Yeah, look, that's a really fascinating question. And there is some evidence that captive animals, as an example, lose some of their natural behaviours. So that's been shown with Tasmanian devils, as an example. We know that also some animals, their brain size decreases through generations in captivity. And so there is a concern that if you take animals from a captive situation and reintroduce them into the wild, then potentially they may not display those natural behaviours. So we do need to be aware of that. And again, I guess that's probably why you would need to start small and trial how animals go and see how they do behave and interact with other animals. It may be in some cases that there might be existing populations of the same species, but in small numbers. And we might be able to supplement those populations with captive animals and potentially they might be able to learn you know, through association with other animals. So, absolutely, the behaviour of individuals is something that we need to be considering, and it is a challenge for programmes. But again, I don't think it's something that necessarily will stop us from doing it, but it's something that we need to be aware of.
0: Rewilding can have more unpredictable trajectories, you can get into a situation where maybe disease might increase or certain risk to human population might increase. And so if that's not very well factored in, and if communities living around are not engaged with decision uh, about whether or not to go for rewilding and how it should be done, then you can get a lot of conflict.
1: Dr Natalie Petarelli, a senior research fellow with the Zoological Society of London. And she recently edited a book on the subject of rewilding, looking at issues around tension, policy and definition.
0: Another source of conflict is in the vagueness of the targets and the lack of real guidelines for implementation. So when you invest into a form of conservation action, you kind of need to know whether it will work and what it will deliver. Rewilding is based on the concept of improving the functioning of ecosystem but the scientific community as a whole is not very good still at really measuring ecosystem function. So it's, it's currently we are lacking example and uh, standard method to demonstrate that re- rewilding is working. Those are improving, though. So as the rewilding concept is getting more discussed in the scientific community, associated discussion with a target setting and monitoring are going on and so Um, My guess is that it's going to get better. But for the moment, there's still a lack of real protocol, which is something that everybody is working towards.
1: And just picking up on that point, you've defined various key research measures that could be useful in terms of improving research in this area, haven't you? So could I get you to take us through some of those?
0: Yes. Some years ago, we tried to come together to identify what needs to happen for rewilding to get more credible for a national agency, for example, to really invest in large scale rewilding, because for the moment, a lot of the uh, rewilding projects are actually set on private land. So the thing that we identified was this idea that you you need to be clear about what's your target and how you're going to implement your rewilding. Then you really need to think about a risk assessment as of how do you identify risk? How do you make sure that you deal with this level of unpredictability in a way that doesn't increase tension? between, for example, rewilders and the community that live in the rewilded or aim to be rewilded sites. Something about the economic cost and associated benefits. So when you change the use of the land into something such as making it a rewilding area, this can have both cost and benefit for local community. Can have economic cost because uh, there might have been people using that loan for something and making money out of it that suddenly lose their livelihood. And then you can have a situation where the benefits are not distributed equally among the community members, which means that some people that we're having a good livelihood on previous land use suddenly lose opportunity to make their livelihood or have enough benefits out of those changes. So really talking about the cost and the benefits and how they're going to be distributed is really important to prevent a future conflict. And I think when we were putting that plan together, this is what we were thinking about, which is rewilding is not just an ecological action or a conservation action. It's more than just biology. It also involves social science and psychology. It involves community and people, which is why we always talked about rewilding in terms of socio ecological system, recognizing that you can't do this without people. It, it will not work if people are not on board. And, and because of this, it's really important to think about the social aspect and the social impact of rewilding and then the last one that we identify as a crucial point is to improve the monitoring and the evaluation so being able to go back to those communities to go back to your funders to go back to governments and able to say well this is what we have done and this is how it's progressing and this is the kind of benefits that you got on the long term and this is the the services and the delivery of services and this is how it has improved so so that you can demonstrate an impact on biodiversity and an impact for people.
3: Absolutely. There's a challenge when you talk about bringing particularly large predators back to the landscape, which may kill and eat livestock, you know, and we know that dingoes do that in some areas. But we also do know that some farmers like having dingoes on their property because they control kangaroo numbers and things like feral pigs and also feral goats. And so We can't generalise about how the farming community will react to the reintroduction of predators. We also need to be aware that there are solutions. So rather than not bringing back predators, we can use things like guardian animals. So large dog species like the maramma is very successful in deterring dingoes attacking sheep. We can use small areas of strategic fencing to protect young livestock. So there are solutions available and I think the other thing that we need to also recognise is that there's many stakeholder groups involved. So absolutely we don't want to be deliberately affecting livestock raises in a negative way by bringing large predators back without managing that risk. But we also need to be aware of that there's many other sectors of society that do want to see these animals in the landscape and that also includes of course you know First Nations people who have cultural associations with many species. So we need to consider all the views and the values of different people across society and manage those when we're thinking about reintroductions and rewilding.
1: Reviving
2: and restoring woolly mammoths and their climate-stabilizing mammoth step is the most spectacular wildlife project that Ryan Phelan and I have taken on for our California nonprofit called Revive and Restore. It is the farthest along in terms of actually editing genes from an extinct species into the genome of a living relative.
1: Now, I did promise we'd come back to the mammoth, and so we have.
2: So de-extinction of the woolly mammoth is in many ways the way Revive and Restore got its start. There's some really exciting goals and ecosystem restoration benefits that we think about. If we had woolly mammoths on the landscape that would be actually an incredible boon for the climate change problem and some of the things we talked about earlier. So in terms of where we're at so far, we are thinking about how to edit Asian elephant genomes and introduce some of the mutations that we know from the woolly mammoth genome were important in conferring cold temperature tolerance. So the genomes are quite similar. And if we can make a few of these important edits things like increasing the fat, making the hair furrier, and adjusting the blood oxygen chemistry, then we think that we could build an Asian elephant that would tolerate the cold temperatures in Siberia quite well. So George Church is the principal investigator working on this. And I can tell you that we have a very exciting postdoc fellowship and We are reviewing applicants now, and so we're expecting to see some big steps forward in this project in the very near future. So stay tuned.
1: Dr Michelle Weber from the organisation Revive and Restore, and there are further details on the Future Tense website. We also heard today from Associate Professor Ewan Ritchie at Deakin University and Dr Natalie Petarelli from the Zoological Society of London. <laughs> Now, next week, the promise of immortality. Can we extend human life indefinitely? Is modern medicine already on that path? And if we can live a much longer life, what are the implications for social equity and future generations? We tend to think of ageing as something that is inevitable and natural and therefore acceptable. And I'm, I'm saying that ageing is actually a medical condition. It's a very common one, but it's also treatable. There are at least two dozen companies around the world developing medicines that could either slow down or in some cases reverse the age of organs and perhaps one day the entire body. So what I'm trying to say here is that there is no biological law that says that we we have to die at 100 or even at at 120. Understanding ageing. That's next week on Future Tense. Thanks as always to Karin Savanovitz, my colleague and co-producer. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until then...